0: Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where writers and scholars of African-American art, life, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young. And today I had the opportunity to speak with Pierre W. Orlis about his provocative and fascinating new book, The Agony of Masculinity, Race Race. Gender and education in the age of new racism and patriarchy. Orlis' book examines the personal narratives of 50 men of African descent and their relationship to patriarchy, maleness, sexism, racism, and homophobia. What you'll find in this book and in my discussion with Pierre Oralis is something that we all can learn from. Let's listen in. Hi, Pierre. Hi, how are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Today we're speaking with Pierre W. Oralus, author of The Agony of Masculinity, Race, Gender, and Education in the Age of the New Racism and Patriarchy, published by Peter Lang in 2010. If the title tells readers anything, it alerts us to the psycho-emotional trauma that black men experience, perhaps across the globe. It further suggests that trying to meet the expectations of masculinity breed rather than reduce the debilitating effects of heteronormativity and compulsory heterosexuality. Oralus brings a unique perspective to the ongoing analysis of gender in our era of the new racism, like sociologist Patricia Hill Collins, who says the new racism must be understood in gender-specific ways. Oralist posits black masculinity as the lens through which we can examine racism, sexism and homophobia. I'm delighted to have Pierre with us to discuss his book. Pierre, will you begin by telling us a bit about yourself? Sure, I'll be happy to.
1: First, let me um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about my book and of course a bit about myself. Um, I was born in a Poor working class family in Haiti. Um Haiti, as you know, was colonized by France, and we gained our independence in 1804, thanks to the sacrifice of the slaves who were imported from Africa to Haiti. I lived in Haiti up until I was in I was I was like early in my early twenties. I then moved to the United States. Now let me back up a little bit. When I was in Haiti, I um I was what would one call political activists? Um, I remember when I was in high school I led a movement that that um, that overthrew the high school principal who used to call us communist but because we used to um, have meetings where we invited people from the left to talk about issues uh, social justice issues uh, which were which the high school principal did not take well. Anyway, I finished high school in Haiti and I spent about three semesters in college. And then I then moved to the United States, uh, partly because my older brother was already living here and encouraged me to come here, uh, assuring me that I would make it. In other words, I would be able to um, have a good education, a uh, good job. So that's the mentality that many Immigrants have. In fact, even, pe- even people want to move to the United States or Europe, all think that if they come here, they will have a better opportunity, which is the case for many, but not all. In any case, when I first came to the U.S., uh, it was at first challenging, both culturally and, and linguistically. Um, by that, I mean I did not speak English, therefore I had to learn it. Uh, once I felt that I had enough proficiency in the language, I decided to go back to school, uh, to finish my bachelor's. Mm-hmm. I did my bachelor's in human services, and I also did a minor in advocacy, human advocacy, uh, thinking that I would go to law school, which in fact I tried, but I realized that law school, law school was not for me, Um therefore I decided to go back to school to Earn earned a master's degree in applied linguistics. Now, before I went back to school, to um, earn my master's in applied linguistics, I worked as a social worker. Uh, mainly I served, uh, elderly uh, folks who needed services to be, uh, who needed services to, to live well at home. Um, I did that for about three years. Then I went then I decided to go back to school to, uh, to do a master's in applied linguistics. While I was doing my master's, I had the opportunity to work, to teach at a high school located in the most marginalized neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts. I taught reading, writing, and critical thinking skills to, uh, people of color, but mainly immigrants from, from Africa, uh, and the Caribbean. I did that for about three years, then I got laid off in 2003, Um, so I decided to go back to school again, once more, to pursue a doctorate in education. Um, While I was doing my doctorate, I had the privilege to work with urban school teachers, uh, which was a very positive experience for me because I was able to... um, Apply some of the theories, knowledge that I acquired in the classroom. Um, so that was a good opportunity for me to see, uh, to be able to uh, put in practice what I was learning in my classrooms, uh, in my classes. Um, so when I finished my my doctorate, as like everybody does, you know, you go in the job market looking for a job. So I did that, and I was made two offers. One of which was at Mexico City University. Which is the place where I'm currently um, teaching and doing research. More or less, that's been my trajectory. I don't know if you want me to expand on certain, you know, areas of my uh, life experience from Haiti to the United States, but basically, in a nutshell, that's been my journey.
0: And perhaps uh, later in the discussion, some of that might become um, uh, relevant to discuss as we discuss some of the interviews that you um, talk about in the book. But before we Begin to discuss, in particular, the agony of masculinity. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, first book, *Under Occupation: The Heavy Price of Living in a Neo-Colonized and Globalized World*?
1: Well, that book, uh, as you may know, I wrote it when I was a student. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Haiti was colonized by France, so in the Haitian school system, we uh, we essentially learn things about France, the history of France. Uh, French philosophers, we learned about them, French literature, and there wasn't enough emphasis in, from, from, you know, when I was going to school in Haiti, uh, there wasn't enough emphasis on Haitian uh, literature, Haitian culture. It seems to me the teachers were, had it colonized mind. They wanted us to learn, um about French literature, French, uh, history, uh, Whereas Haitian history, Haitian literature was 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 not something that they really emphasized on. So I found that very problematic, and I resisted this form of, this form of uh, colonial legacy. Um, then moving from Haiti to the United States, I was faced with linguism, you know, discrimination based on on one language, on one native language. Um, so all these experiences combined, I realized that it was important for me. To put it into point like my voice my or my voice it was important for me to put my voice into point. Okay. This is why I decided to write a book while i was uh while I was pursuing my doctorate in education basically in the book i I provide a critique of the of the Haitian school system, which is still a colonial ba- colonial colonial based school system in other words, all the books that uh that I used when i was in high when when I was in high school reflect uh Deeply, uh, French literature, French culture, French literature, even the, even, even the, the, on the cover of those books, you, you have, you have images, pictures of, 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 of French philosophers, French, you know, uh, uh, writers, but there, like I said, there wasn't enough emphasis on, on, uh, uh on French, uh, on Haitian literature, Haitian, uh, history, although there, there were some teachers, my, uh, history uh, high school, History teacher was, was very conscious of, of that. And he made the effort to, to talk about Haitian history in the most inspiring, profound way. Nonetheless, there were teachers, like I said, who had a colonized mind. They thought that French, the language, is superior to, you know, Haitian Creole. And, and I resisted that in high school. And when I came to the United States, and I, I faced similar challenges, you know, uh, English is, English as, is perceived and, and treated as as a dominant language, whereas other languages are looked down upon. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel that as, as a college student, I faced that as a, as, a, as, a, as a high school teacher. And I, I thought it was important for me to talk about those issues, issues such as you know bilingual education, the English only movement. I try to challenge that in my in my work. And I also look at you know how culture influences how people think, you know how people behave, how people perceive uh, others and, and treat others. So. More or less, that's what I, that's what I tried to address in, in that book.
0: And so tell us how you came to write The Agony of Masculinity. That's a very good question. Well, um, as you may know, Haiti is a
1: very uh, male-dominated country. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, male dominance in Haiti, uh, a lot of sexism, homophobia. And I, w- I was exposed to it uh, early on in, in, in life. My dad, uh, who I highly admire, uh, was a sexist man. I mean, the way he treated my mom, my sisters, my sisters, uh, was not human in, in many ways. Uh, he had low expectations of, of my sisters, whereas he, he thought that I would always be successful because I was a man. Uh, he always expected my mom to cook, clean for him. Uh, while he would not treat her right. So, uh, it doesn't matter how tired my mom was. When she came home, she had to clean for my dad. She had to, you know, make sure the house was, was well kept, you know, was clean. Um, and that was what that's what was expected of my mom. Even though she, she was, she was, she was a hard worker. She was, she worked long hours, but, but when she came home, she still had to make sure there was food on the table. Otherwise my dad would be mad. So these are the things I experienced growing up as a boy, um, when my dad learned that I had, like, two or three girlfriends, and he, I would be praised for that, you know. And instead of saying, Pierre, you should be careful and you should treat the woman's right, you should not, you know, you shouldn't be uh having four or five girlfriends while while your girlfriend, you know, are not allowed to have two or three boyfriends. So, you know, I had that male privilege that I, I did not question as a boy. I thought it was the normal thing to do, having three four girlfriends and and what about them and my dad, my old brother, and, and and close friends, close male friends, would praise me for it. And then when I came to the United States, uh, I I continue, you know, experiencing, uh, witnessing, you know, um, male dominance, but also racism. So I think, you know, I thought it was important for me to sort of combine those two, blackness and, and malness, and, and explore them in, in, in a book. So while I was Pursuing an advanced graduate certificate in women's studies, I took many classes, which, which really shaped the way I see, the way I see understand uh, maleness, masculinity, and in relation to racism and uh, uh, white supremacy and patriarchy. Uh, and so, as I was sitting with my wife in the living room, I clearly remember it was on uh, Thursday evening, we were just talking, and I said to her that, you know what, I would like to uh, write a book on black masculinity black masculinity and of course as always she said to me yeah funny you should go for it well the same night I started making a list of men that I thought would be uh interested in participating in the book so I contacted you know friends classmates professors and neighbors and so I emailed them and I emailed about 70 um men that I knew and of course i I talked to some of my friends who invite their friends to participate in the book, and uh about fifty responded positively to my request um, they are from you know they were from different diverse backgrounds in terms of race, class, gender, and ethnicity. Some of them were university professors while others were you know uh, college dropouts uh taxi drivers, street performers you know um, guidance counselors um people who, use, who were arrested and uh in jail for drug trafficking and some of them were owned uh, uh street clubs and I wanted to make sure that my participant you know uh has a different you know diverse background and would bring different voices and to, and to, would bring different voices and, and fight share different insights with me about black masculinity. So more or less that's how the idea of, of the book uh, uh, was created, uh, was conceptualized, if you will. Um, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's about it.
0: And the interviewees in the book, as you say, um, have, um, uh, span the gamut of um genders and sexual sexual identities as well as um ethnic background under the rubric of of black can you tell us a little bit about that um uh, could you could you rephrase what you said i'm not sure if i understand your question in other words uh the interviewees are are not all african american heterosexuals they mm-hmm. are um, men of African descent, but but mm-hmm. some of them are immigrants. Some of them come from the Caribbean, etc. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if you could tell us about the range of identities that your um, interviewees um, uh, hold. Okay.
1: Well, you know, um, personally, I'm against ethnocentrism, and I and I thought it would be important for me to interview people from different backgrounds. And at first. Uh, the goal was to interview only African Americans. Then I said to myself, No, well, African Americans may not know how it's like to be a man going up in the Caribbean, uh, and having to face with, you know, uh, patriarchy, uh, sexism, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, so I decided that I would interview men of African descent. It doesn't matter where they are from. Um, and so I had. Uh, Like I said, I have people who are, you know, who are African Americans, who are from the Caribbean, who uh, are from Africa, uh, who came here when they were, you know, seven, eight years old. They practically grew up here. So, my goal was to interview people who have different experiences with racism, sexism, patriarchy. If I were to, if I were to interview only African Americans, Although African-Americans are not homogeneous because they are class and, and six, you know, uh, class issues involved. Uh, but I thought it would, it would be limited. Therefore, I said it would, it would make more sense to interview people from Africa. Because Africans, people who are from Africa may not have the same experience as African-Americans. Likewise, people from the Caribbean, male of African descent who were born and grew up in, in the Caribbean, we don't have the same understanding of racism as African Americans mm-hmm. because they haven't been here living, they haven't lived in the United States long enough to understand the intricacies of racism. You see? So I thought it would be important for me to bring all different voices into the book so that the reader can have a more or less a comprehensive understanding of how race, uh, gender plays out in terms of how men of African descent are perceived and treated uh and 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 the u s society and beyond
0: can you tell us a little bit about the similarities and differences that uh that you discovered among these men that you interviewed in terms of their experience with uh racism and patriarchy right
1: um one thing that I would later out i'm gonna share with you some of the some of the some of the findings of the book and I would illustrate further what you just what you just asked me. But for now let me say that uh men from again i'm i'm generalizing because i am only referring to those that i interviewed of course uh, the the men from from the caribbean that I interviewed do not represent the voices of all men of the Caribbean. so and i, I want to make sure that i that i that I point this out likewise the african american men i interviewed in this in this book for this book their voices do not represent the voice of all African, African American men, right? So I would say this. I, from, from what I, based on the findings, it seems to me that men from the Caribbean seem to have a different experience with manliness and patriarchy. Although there are a lot of similarities, they all agree, most of the participants agree, that men have benefited from the patriarchal system. That privileges the voices of men over women. That enables men, to, for example, to go out on the street without having without having to worry about being raped. So they understand that. They understand that men tend to be taken more seriously than women. That's a common thread that I found found among the men of Uganda that I interviewed for the book. Similarly, they all shared with me that. They have been victimized by the racist system in which they are, they are, they are operating as men of African descent. So with the exception of one man of African descent who was born and grew up in Trinidad and Tobago who stated that he did not, he has not experienced racism, partly because he spent most of his time in the lab doing experiments. He was, a... Uh, Was uh, finishing uh, PGN in polymer chemistry. He was the only one among all the men, all the participants that I interviewed, who stated that he did not experience, or at least hasn't experienced yet, racism. Mm -hmm. All the men who participated in the study stated clearly that they have been victims of racism just because of their
0: skin tone. And I don't know if that answers your question. Are the men that you're referring to all of the men, the ones who have a a immigrant background, as well as ones who uh, were uh, uh, Native Americans, or Native African Americans?
1: I did not interview Native Native uh, Native. I don't know what you mean by Native Native African American, but I I interviewed African Americans. Most of them, most of the participants that I interviewed actually were. African-Americans, uh, African African-Americans. There were some from the Caribbean, some from Africa, I mean from the continent, Africa, who came here when they were 18 years old. They came here for college. Uh, and I also interviewed, um, uh, a man who was, who was from, Algeria, uh, different parts from, you know, different parts from Africa. And so these are the men that I interviewed. African-Americans, uh, Africans, and
0: Caribbean men. Okay. And that,
1: that, that, that was, the uh, that, that was the, that, that was, that was, that was the men I
0: interviewed. Yes. And that's, that's very clear. And the question that I was asking, I just wanted to underscore, um, what I heard you say, which is that despite the native background, uh, whether they were born in, in the Caribbean and came to America or born in Africa and came to America, despite the native background, all of the men except one said that they experienced racism by the sheer fact, of their skin tone. That's correct. Is there any um, variation in terms of um, their experience with um, sexism or um, homophobia or et cetera?
1: Yes. Um, Well, you know, I think there are more similarities than differences uh, when it comes to homophobia. For example, one of the... Haitian man I interviewed, uh, was born in Haiti. I I believe he came here when he was about 12 years old. He, uh, has similar understanding about homophobia as an African American man whose father was African American and mother was Colombian. So, uh, depending on the level of consciousness, I found men, I found some of my participants were more sophisticated, were more knowledgeable, more knowledgeable about the way the patriarchal system operates. Where some of them seem to be uh naive, and it turns out as it turned out, the participants were more interested in talking about racism than sexism, partly because they did not want to confront their own male privileges and i and I've seen a lot of that when i try- when I would begin the conversation talking about you know maleness you know um and they would sort of deviate from that conversation and and focus on racism because that that's what seemed to be they were mostly preoccupied by. Um, so if you were to read the book you would see that they they would go they would even when even when even though I wanted to get some insight from them about maleness, about their male privileges, many of them sort of deviated from my question and they would they would they would they would they would, they would um they would rather talk about racism, which seemed to be uh, the main concern. Nonetheless, those who did Take the time to talk about uh patriarchy uh, uh sexism they were pretty open about the ma villages they also referred to the mothers to the you know to their uh sisters who they witnessed expenses uh experiencing uh sexism and they were pretty open about it like i said some of them sort of they would just uh um uh talk a little bit about it and move on to talk about racism
0: mhm. So some, that's of the, what, yeah, go ahead. some of the men uh, uh, in the in the survey uh, questions that you asked them did not openly disclose their um, sexual identities. Some of them did. Right, that's correct. And I did tell them that uh, when I was doing the interview, I said you do not you don't
1: have to talk about your sexual preferences if you don't feel comfortable doing so. I gave them the option, with the exception of one. Man was, was clear. I mean, he was, he was clear. He's a transgender man. He was born female and later on in life, he decided to transition from being female to being male. He was pretty open about his sexuality. But most of the men did not want to reveal their sexual preferences and, and I did not want to stigmatize them. I didn't want to have, um put them in, put them in a position where they had to say something that they didn't want to say. So I told them right from the beginning, um, I would like to know if how you identify yourself sexually, whether you are bisexual or gay or straight. And uh, those who seem to be straight, they would say I'm straight. Others were sort of different. They were sort of uh, unclear. They were not. Didn't seem to be interested in talking about their sexual preferences. Uh, Like I said, they would talk about their male privileges and go on to talk about racism, but. Uh, it seems to me the, the question about sexual preferences were, was a little bit, uh, uh, uncomfortable for some of them. Uh,
0: what do you think that is?
1: Well, partly because of the stigma they have about, uh, gay, bisexual men, especially bisexual men of African descent. Um perhaps they don't want to reveal that. Uh, and as you know, there are many men of African descent who are still in the closet because they don't want to come out they don't want to come out and be stigmatized by their own community of color. Um, and in fact, some of the men talk about that. They see that in the African-American community, there's a lot of uh, homophobia. Uh, to a point where men who are gay or you know, bisexual, they don't want to, they don't want to reveal that to their friends and families because they know if they do that, they will be uh, isolated, they will be stigmatized, they will be discriminated against. And I suspect that may have been the reason why uh, some of my participants,
0: uh, chose not to talk about to to reveal their sexual preferences so is it fair to assume that the among the interviewers that the men who were um unequivocally heterosexual or straight felt no uh discomfort in disclosing their um sexual identity but the men who may have been bisexual or homosexual did feel um discomfort is that a fair assumption that's correct. That's correct. Is it possible, uh, that there were some men who had a, who were unequivocally, uh, heterosexual, but felt that disclosing, uh, that heterosexual identity may in and of itself be perpetuating, um, uh, heteronormativity? In other words, that by asserting, um, uh their heterosexual identity they would in some way be um uh participating in in patriarchy
1: that could have been uh th- that, that that is a possibility but based on my obs- observation and my interaction with them i didn't feel that some of them uh refused to assert their heterosexual you know uh, privileges um because of the reason that you just evoked. Um uh, but I agree with you. There are many men who refuse to say that they are straight because they want, they want, because they want to challenge, uh, the, the patriarchal system that expect men to be straight, uh, preferably, you know, uh, able-bodied, Christian, straight, white male, men. So, although I agree with you what you said, and I'm fully aware of, of that, of that factor, However, in my in my finding, I did not um, discover any men. I didn't have any participant who who chose not to talk about their heterosexual privileges, or just because of that because of that reason. Uh, I think uh, they simply did not. I suspect those who decided not to talk about that could have been bisexual uh, and and refused to reveal it. That that was my that was my that would be my um, hypothesis.
0: Mm-hmm. Again, I
1: don't have any evidence to support to support that.
0: Although there are, of course, uh, men who disclose their um, sexual identities a- across the um, range, as bisexual or homosexual and a straight among the interviewees. I just want to make that clear for the readers. That's correct. What was some of the um, surprises? Was was there anything surprising? about uh, what you found in these interviews?
1: Yes, there was one, one instance. Uh, I interviewed a man um, who was born and grew up in Puerto Rico. He's, he identified himself as Afro-Puerto-Rican. And he shared with me that and uh, in Puerto Rico, it's okay to be gay if you are a white Puerto Rican or the way whiteness is being constructed in Puerto Rico. Uh, it's okay, but if you are an Afro-Puerto it's, it's a stigma. So it's harder for Afro-Puerto to reveal their, uh, sexual preferences, you know, if they are gay or bisexual, it's harder for them to come out of the closet than it is for Puerto Ricans who are identified as white. I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I wasn't, I wasn't fully surprised by it, but I thought it was interesting, you know, and that is happening in Puerto Rico. Mm. Um, so it, you see how race and, and sexuality and gender sort of play out, right? I, I expected, right? Uh, and, and, and that to me, that was a, that was a very interesting discovery, uh, in my, in my research. I did not expect him to share that with me, uh, partly because I, again, I don't know if he feels, I don't know if he's, um uh, bisexual. He never refe- revealed his, his sexuality to me. Uh, he talked mostly about, you know, how, um uh, he's been tuned against uh in the US by virtue of being Afro Puerto Rican. And even even went on to say that uh he's been treated against by his own people <laughs> and unfortunately not get to get him to expand on that. Um uh but essentially what he said he's been mostly supported by white Americans and people from his own native land. Um but what I found interesting in his in his statement was that afro and Puerto Ricans and Puerto Rico uh tend to have a harder time coming out of closet than than men than particular men
0: who are identified as white. So um, after reading the book uh and coming across that example as well as some others uh among the um um interviews, I came up with a hypothesis that I'd like for you to respond to. Sure. It seemed as if um uh in a uh it seemed as if whiteness pervasively defines a standard of masculinity, and that if you to be non white is already uh uh is already a position is already a position in which one's masculinity is questioned and so to um Identify with a mask, a non-normative masculinity or with a um, sexual identity that is other than heterosexual seems to support or justify a stigmatized or, um, oppressed identity that's other than white. And so, um, a Afro-Puerto Rican or even an African American, for instance, May have this difficulty with their own gender identity because of the oppressed state that they're in.
1: I absolutely agree with you. I and mean, if you, if we were to go back to, uh, to historically, white men, white privileged white men, I've been doing defining how other men should behave, should perform their their malice. and even doing. The- the colonial era of slavery, uh, male African descent were somewhat stripped of their masculinity. Uh, the white man, the white master, were the ones who define how they should behave. Uh, they could not public, openly perform the malice, except at home. In fact, uh, what I would, I would, I would go on arguing that in the, and the sugar cane or, 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 or in the plantation, uh, they were not allowed to really perform their malice the way they would, they, they would, they would perform it at home. So what, what happened during, during slavery, there were Af- African, uh, the slaves, the male slaves who were, who were oppressed by the white masters, uh, ended up, you know, ended up abusing their wives and, and, children because of the oppression that they were experiencing and the, and the, and the, in the, in the plantation field and the, and the sugarcane or cotton field. Uh, so anyway, they, they were somewhat, you know, uh, stripped of their masculinity, masculinity. Uh, and that legacy continues up until now. White males, privileged white males are the ones who define, you know, how, it's, how one should be, behave as a man. Uh, so I'm not surprised that, uh, Afro, uh, Afro- the weekend, or people of African descent, uh, are condition to perform the malice based on the standard that's been set by the white man. And when I say white man, I'm referring to privileged white men because we know class uh, also shapes or informs how the man behaves. So I'm not referring to poor white men, I'm referring to privileged white men. So it, this, is a, this is a model many, many men of African descent have been some, somehow uh, forced to adopt to emulate. And if you look at all the major Hollywood movies, what type of masculinity is being displayed in, within, in, in these movies? It's a white male-class form of masculinity. You see? Uh, it, it, it's very pervasive. It's very pervasive. And by being exposed to this type of misrepresentation of m- male performance by African-American, by male African descent, we have learned that to be accepted as a man, we have to perform a the type of masculinity that's been set for us by privileged right white males. So I'm not really surprised at all that we, as men of African descent, have a tendency to perform uh, a type of masculinity that reflects uh a white way, if I can put it that way, of behaving a white male way of behaving, of 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 acting, of of even speaking <laughs> for that matter. So it, it's not it's not surprising surprising at all to me as as a researcher. But doing the research confirmed some of what I've you know I uh, what I've uh uh taught uh believed even before I I, I did the research. Mm-hmm. Uh and of course there were surprises and I never I, I, I do not it did not occur to me that afro americans are being oppressed uh i'm referring to those who are who are gay or uh, bisexual are being oppressed because they the they, they, they cannot come out because a black man cannot be gay black men cannot be bisexual that's that's taboo but a white man can can be so it, it it's it's a it's a colonial legacy that we are still uh, uh
0: um being a victim of Mm-hmm. Can you uh, read to us some of a passage uh, from the book? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um,
1: the story of the 50 men
0: involved, uh,
1: again, I'm just going to read some, some of the narratives, some of the quotes, uh, and, and then I will make, I will make a con- concluding remark, if you, if, if you don't mind. Uh, the story of the 50 men involved and, and in and, and my study illuminates how they have been taught to perform the malice often in oppressive and destructive ways against women, other men, and themselves. Directly or indirectly, the performance of the maleness has not only been oppressive to women and men, but also contributed to maintain the patriarchal system. As a case in point, a 30 old man of African descent, who claimed to be highly educated, repeatedly said that women are soft and weaker than men, and that they should be, they should obey their husband, stay at home, and take care of the children, clean the house, and cook. A significant number of men who took part in the, in the study shared this view. Another equally important fact that is worth noting here is that the story of nearly 99% of the of the participants reflect the high degree to which many of them have faced and endured the harmful effects of racism and white supremacy. Many of them lamented the fact that they have been discriminated against because of their racial and ethnic backgrounds. Likewise, they talk about the experience with maleness. For example, one of the men uh, who was six years old, who was six years old, is African-American, and he was a guidance counselor for over 20 years, uh, burst into, t- into tears while he was talking about his mother. He also lamented the fact that he did not have an emotional connection with his father until his father died. He stated, and I quote, My dad was a hard worker. I witnessed how angry he got when he was talking about his job. But he did not allow me to know him as my dad. He was just behaving like a man when I tried to approach him and talk to him. I wish I got to know him. I know he was a good man, but he never should. His emotions were in front of us. The only time we got to see some of his emotions was when he came home and started talking about his white boss who did not treat him right. End of, end quote. Similarly, Joseph, which is a pseudonym, a 27 year old man who was born in Haiti but grew up in the United States, expressed disappointment about his authoritarian Haitian father who spent more time disciplining his children, and building a good relationship with them. He stated that at work, his father earned the reputation of being a friendly, warm, and funny person. However, at home, he was a very different person. Emotionally, he was completely detached from him, his brothers, and his sisters. He did not feel personally connected to his father until his parents were divorced. Joseph told his story in the following terms. And I quote, my dad was a very violent guy. In his mind, what he had to do to be a good father is to be disciplinarian by hitting us and by being mean and tough, so on and so forth. So I experienced him as very distant and disconnected from me, my mother, my brothers, and sisters. End quote. Similar to Joseph, Tom, whose African-American father died when he was five years old that he did not feel that his white Colombian mother understood the racial prejudice and racism that he faced while he was a high school student. He therefore had to rely on his older cousin for support and counseling. However, his experience with his cousin was not pleasant. Often, his cousin forced him to get into fights fight so he could prove his maleness. The message that he constantly received from his older cousin was that as a boy, he had to be tough and cannot be a punk or sissy. Tom expressed his frustration in these terms, and I quote, My Colombian mother was brought to the States, so she had a sort of understanding of how race plays out in the U.S. system. But she did not really understand the intricacies of racism. So there were times when I came home and I explained to her that at school there were teachers that did not expect much of me. Even I explained that to her, she never fully understood what was going on. My cousin would tell me what I decided, what I needed to do was to men up. He was sort of my immediate role model. He was about five years older than, I, than me, so he was the one that said, and I quote, this is what you need to do, men up, end of the quote. Like, to, like, Like Tom and Joseph, another African-American man in his mid-twenties at the time, felt that he was expected to be tough and behave like a real boy. That is, repress his emotions. He was expected to show interest in sports so he would not be called a sissy. He had to resist and fight against the homophobic view of his grandmother, who questioned his sexual orientation because, in her view, friends did not show enough interest in girls as a boy. Friend said that he could not cry in front of his parents and grandparents who expected him not to show any emotion. His male friend, on the other hand, did not have any problem with him crying in front of her. That female friend was the only one among many who did not have a problem with men crying in front of her in front of women. Friend narrates his story in the following terms, and I quote in high school. There was this image that the ideal man should be a tough guy or a tug. That wasn't me at all, but I noticed that a good portion of the woman seemed to be attracted to that. So I felt compelled at times to be seen as tough in front of girls. Looking back to the first time I cried in front of a girl I liked, I have to say I appreciate her for supporting me, and not re- reverting to the stereotypes of boys don't cry. Since that point, I no longer have the anxiety of crying in front of women who I have intimate relationship with. Although when I do it, it seems to make some of them react in surprising ways because they haven't seen that much in their lives. So most of the participants felt that they had to perform a certain type of manliness in order to meet the expectation of their friends, family members, and people in their community. Some argue that because they are black, people expect more of a male performance of them. Uh, I refer earlier, uh, to the African, to the Afro-Puerto Rican, uh, who, who shared with me that it's okay for a white Puerto Rican to come out and, and, sh- and say, you know, he's gay or bisexual, but for an Afro, for Afro- Puerto Rican, it's, 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 much harder.
0: Um,
1: and I also noted earlier that, uh, although most of the participants, uh, stated that they experienced racism, but there was only one, uh, man from Trinidad in Tobago who claimed that he hasn't yet been a victim of racism. Um, this black male from Trinidad and Tobago stated, and I quote, I have, I haven't had so much experience racism, which I think is good, but I know I have friends who have experienced it. Maybe I'm being naive. I want my friends to try to get past racism, so we can move forward as a race. This is not affecting me directly. I think I'm being a little bit naive or being open-minded. I think it would be more concerned it would be more more of a concern for me if I if I if I had experienced it directly, but I haven't. Alfred uh, was finishing a PG in polymer chemistry when I interviewed him for the book. Uh, in his own words. Studying this type of chemistry is an advantage for him, as there are, there are many people of color who study, who study poly, uh, polymer chemistry. He said that as a student, he spent most of his time in the lab doing experiments. Consequently, he had very limited exposure to the out, outside world. Alfred felt that his, this might have protected him from being discriminated against as a man of color, as he has interacted only with a very limited number of people. When I asked him about in, 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 institutional racism, he said that, yeah, it actually works in favor as many companies are looking for people of color with a background in polymer chemistry. Alfred said, and in our, I in our, in our quote, actually, institutional racism works in my favor being a black chemist mm-hmm. specializing in, pol- in polymer chemistry. Some of these companies are actually looking f- to hire black polymer chemists because we are in demand. So it actually worked in my favor, although I would rather be hired on the basis of my skill and my experience, not because I'm a black chemist. Again, personally, I haven't experienced racism. Thankfully, I haven't been exposed to it, but that doesn't mean in the future I would not be. If that happens in the future, I'll try to remain open-minded and try to look at the situation objectively. Racism essentially uh, helps me, but it shouldn't, but it does, and it really Individually, I haven't had too much experience with racism. End of the quote. Uh, so these are the quotes that I, that I, um that I figured I would share with you, although there are many, 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 many more, but I figured I would, I would end there.
0: That's excellent. Thank you so much. Can you tell us what you're working on now?
1: Right now I'm working on, I'm working on many projects, one of which is, uh, is a book, uh, called Linguistic Appetite in the English-only movement and in this book I'm looking at how from, from the colonial era until now how uh western countries have tried to silence other languages in other cultures to give primacy to dominant languages such as English, French, and how those to French and English, and we have continued to witness the colonial legacy, as mentioned earlier during slavery uh, uh, many languages, many dialects, if you want to put it put it that way, were wiped out because the colonizers wanted to impose their own languages their own cultures on the colonized and with the english only movement in the United States, we have continued to witness a new form of Colonization, as far as language, language and cultural, linguistic and cultural issues are, are concerned, and, and that's what I'm trying to do in this book. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, to, to make a point saying that the fact that we are living in the so-called post-colonial era does not mean uh, issues that colonized people faced during colonization uh, are gone. We are still facing cultural, linguistic, you know, uh, uh, oppression by those who are in power. And, and that's one project. The other project, I'm doing a book on Idrat Said. I'm looking at how the legacy of Idrat Said has continued to influence the work of many young scholars like myself. I think Idrat Said's work is relevant and it always will be as long as, uh, we are, we have, uh, U.S. imperialism, um, uh, as long as we have, um, uh, Islamophobia, as long as the the, the rest, when I when well, by the rest, I'm referring to third world countries, are being are being looked down upon by the West. So Edward Said's work, like French Renaissance friend work, will will always be relevant. So those are the two projects among many
0: that I'm working on. Thank you so much, Pierre, for joining us on new books in African American Studies. You're welcome, sir. We've been talking to Pierre W. Orlis, the author of The Agony of Masculinity, Race, Gender, and Education in the Age of New Racism and Patriarchy, published by Peter Lang Press in 2010. I hope you enjoyed our discussion, and I hope you will return and listen to others on new books in African American Studies.